You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Welcome back to all of our participants here for the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Welcome, Annie. Father Hezekiah, it is good to see you again. It is good to see you also, Annie. Looking yeah, forward to jumping into our biblical text today. Yeah, a good set of readings to talk about, I yeah, think. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Something near, well, I mean, near to okay. my heart. I, I guess I shouldn't say that as if other sets of readings are not good, but... No, but this one has to do with food. Yeah, and that's always an enjoyable topic I'm, of discussion, is it not? I'm, I'm into food, <laughs> yes. So let's jump into it here. Let's give our, give our uh, biblical texts. Okay? Yes, get out your uh, notebooks and write these down. Get out your Bibles and uh, get them ready to go. The first reading for the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. The responsorial psalm comes from Psalm 15. Our gospel, as we continue our way, I feel like we've been in Luke chapter 10 for like four or five weeks now. I know. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And our epistle comes from St. Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. You ready to go, Father? Not I'm hard to find go. the Let's book of it. Genesis, thankfully. So, is that, uh, is that the beginning or the end of your Bible? Uh, keep... I'm going to let people decide for themselves <laughs> or guess for themselves, yeah. I suppose. Let's do it. Um, all right. Genesis 18. We're starting in verse one. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth of Mamre as he sat in the entrance of his tent while the day was growing hot. Looking up, Abraham saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to greet them. And bowing to the ground, he said, Sir, if I may ask you this favor, please do not go on past your servant. Let some water be brought that you may bathe your feet and then rest yourselves under the tree. Now that you have come this close to your servant, let me bring you a little food that you may refresh yourselves and afterward you may go on your way. The men replied, very well, do as you have said. Abraham hastened into the tent and told Sarah, quick, three measures of fine flour, knead it and make it rolls. He ran to the herd, picked out a tender choice steer and gave it to a servant who quickly prepared it. Then Abraham got some curds and milk, as well as the steer that had been prepared and set these before the three men. And he waited on them under the tree while they ate. They asked Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? He replied there in the tent. One of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah will then 
have a son. Seems like a pretty significant uh, passage that we have here. Father, What at what point in the life of Abraham does this encounter take place? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. I think it is helpful to us because, you know, we haven't been in the book of Genesis much of late. We've been doing a lot of the prophets before that. We we're in Acts of the Apostles. Here we go back to the life of Abraham. And as usual, we're parachuting in the middle of liturgy on Sunday morning and the kids are screaming and got poopy <laughs> diapers and yeah, uh, all no these idea what's going on. So, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, you know, the, the most we can get out of this is like, well, that's nice, right? Abraham's so nice to these people. And so, you know, but there's more going on than, than that in the story. And so let's go back and just contextualize a little bit. And to do that, we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 11. Okay. Chapter 11, just, and I'm just going to ro- kind of roll through these chapters really quick, just so we can kind of wrap our mind around it. And uh, because this is our goal, right? During our Sunday golf reflections at the ICC, uh, not necessarily to give an exact exegesis or homily on the text itself, although we do do that. More importantly, um, uh, we have as our goal is to contextualize so that your preach your your priest can preach his homily effectively, you knowing the context of what's going on. So here we are in Genesis chapter eleven. You have the story of the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. but on both sides of the story of the Tower of Babel are the genealogies. The genealogies help us connect ourselves to the rest of the story and so you you have if you just take a look at uh at chapter 11 verse 10 these are the descendants of shem now of course shem you look back if you're not sure who that is genesis chapter 9 verses uh what you want to look at verse 26 and following uh or you could go back earlier and see them see the sons of noah so shem is the eldest son of Noah, who receives the blessing to become head of the family. And here's his genealogy in chapter 11, verse 10. Why is that important? Because I'm going to bring my eye all the way down to verse 27. And you're going to find out that Abram is a descendant of Shem, Shem being the son of Noah, Noah being the son of, and so forth, so forth, so forth, all the way back to Adam. So you know the genealogy where we're at in the story. Abram finds himself out in Ur of the Chaldees here in chapter 11, verse 28. And if you've done any Bible studies with me in the past, you'll know this is an important passage because here we have somebody living out east of Jerusalem. And of course, in Genesis, okay, now I'm having to go too much. I own too much context, but you know what? You got to do it. Okay. So just very quickly, Genesis chapter three, verse 24 you'll see that Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise in an eastward direction, right? He places mm, the cherubim right. with the sword on the eastern side of, of the Garden of Eden. And so the place of exile is east as far as Genesis is concerned. And now we find a guy directly east of where he's going to be called, which is Jerusalem. And again, I say again and again many times that from a biblical perspective, for the ancient biblical peoples, Jerusalem was considered to be the original location of the Garden of Eden. Okay, so now we're going to draw a straight, direct line east of paradise, and we find a man in exile out there at in Ur of the Chaldees, and God calls him, and where does he call him back to? If you draw a line directly west, you hit 
the city of Jerusalem. So he's going to come and he's going to receive this land as an inheritance, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Because many, many people might think, well, this is just, you know, God being nice to Abraham. No, no. Abraham is a descendant of Shem, who's a descendant of Noah, who's a descendant of Enoch, who's a descendant of, of you know, all these guys all the way down to Seth to Adam. And this is the family land. He's being given back. He's receiving back that which is his inheritance is the rightful descendant of the throne of Adam in paradise. And so he comes and who does he meet there? Melchizedek. We've talked about this in the past, that Melchizedek and Shem, same person. And he comes and he receives the blessing from Melchizedek to become head of the family, receives this land in chapter 12. Now, that's all the big, 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 big time context, more specifically Abraham's life. Where does this take place in Abraham's life then? Abraham is called back in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 and following to the promised land. But he gets there, and in verse 10, there's a drought in the land, a famine. And so he bails out and goes to Egypt. Now, you know, in this biblical story, Egypt is not a good place to go. Yes? Because once you go to Egypt... It's hard to get out of Egypt, or at least it's hard to get Egypt out of you. We've seen this so many times, right, Annie, with the yep. Israelites. Yep. They come out of, they come out during the time of Exodus, and they're carrying paganism in their hearts. And so here we go, chapter 12, verse 10, Abraham goes down there, and the story is not a good one. And in chapter 13, Abram makes his way back to the promised land. And here's the thing is that from a biblical way of speech or when the, when the biblical authors write, they don't specifically call out the sin of their father. That's not done. You don't do that. You right. protect your father. You cover for him, right? Sure. But you still can tell the story so that others can learn how to live their life and not how not to live their life. Well, this is a good example of that he goes down to Egypt. He never says that this is a bad thing to do. But of course, God never told him to go to Egypt. He told him to go to the promised land. And he says there he's going to take care of him. But Abraham doesn't trust. And this is Abraham's problem is he doesn't trust the Lord. And he ends up getting himself into all sorts of problems time and time again because he doesn't trust. Right. And that's going to get specifically to what we're talking about here today in this chapter 18. Anyways, he comes out of Egypt and he's got Egypt in his heart. Well, how do we know that? Well, because we find in uh, we, we come to, to, to learn that in chapter 15 and s- specifically 16, that Abraham came out of Egypt with more than just Egyptian gold. He came out with a maidservant who, yeah, not too good. He ends up having relations with Sarah's, his wife's maidservant, and they have a child. Yeah, polygamy is not part of God's plan. He might allow for it for a time to give man an opportunity for repentance because he's living in the midst of a pagan society and he keeps being drawn into it. But this is not God's plan. And the whole story here of now what's going to happen is, is, is all about the fact that Abraham didn't trust. Why does he have an Egyptian maidservant? Well, because Sarah's barren. She has no children. And Abraham's like, I got to have offspring. And God says, don't worry, you're going to have offspring. So he ends up taking Hagar, 
which is not supposed to happen. And God comes and clarifies, no, you are going to have a son born from your wife, Sarah. Yeah. Now Abraham and Sarah are old. And so when, when the Lord tells Abraham this in chapter 16, verse 17, in fact, if you look at chapter 17, is a key chapter in the life of Abraham when God says, okay, circumcision. Why? Because <laughs> chapter 16 is the story of Hagar and the Egyptian. Well, circumcision was a practice of the Egyptians. Mm. Yes. So now Abraham goes and plays around with the Egyptians. So God says, all right, exactly. You want to play with the Egyptians? You can walk like (laughs) the Egyptians. Yeah. So at 99 years old, in 99 years old, Abraham is, um, look at that in chapter 17, verse 24, 99 years old, Abraham circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ouch. Yeah. Not, not nice. Okay. So he's going to now have the mark to remind him. Oftentimes happens in a covenant relationship with God is that he allows our sins to be in front of us as a reminder of our former life and not to fall into that again. Yes. And our new life, then we're reminded to always be committed to. So now he's going to walk around with the sign of the Egyptians on his flesh. And then God says to him in chapter 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. King's people shall come from her. What? Lord, I'm 99 years old and Sarah is kind of elderly too. All right. We ain't having any kids. And so the next verse in your Bible says that Abraham fell on his face and worshiped the Lord. Hmm. No, it doesn't say that, does it? No. It says it fell on his face. So come on. Why not Ishmael? Yeah. What? <laughs> I could have a, a son by, by that old lady. And the Lord says, yeah. Yeah, yeah you are. It, it's it's about time you start trusting me. You, you didn't trust me back then. You, let, you went down to Egypt. You didn't trust me. And I told you, I'm going to bless you. And many nations be born. You didn't trust me. So I'm going to give you a son. And and and, and his name, it's going to be Isaac. You're going to name him Isaac, right? So uh, Isaac means he laughed. So that every time he calls his son, he's reminded that he laughed at the Lord. He didn't believe him, right? Sarah, too, she laughs about this, too, doesn't she? Well, this is where we're at. Now we're in chapter 18, and we have this story comes to us. But unfortunately, it stops one verse short because, well, we're in chapter 10, verses 1, chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. It had, it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of a woman. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have got, got, grown old, my husband is old. Shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So, uh, so obviously... And the Lord told a- Abraham or Abraham, you know, that he's going to have a son. 
he fell down and started laughing and he never even went and told his wife. Wow. Okay. So now it's the Lord says, why is she That's laughing? Problematic. <laughs> yeah. Rather problematic. Why is she laughing? You should have told her back then oh. what I told you, but instead you moron. You should, I shouldn't say that because he's a great patriarch. Abraham, but I'll tell you <laughs> the Lord, how the Lord, you know, you gotta, you gotta read the scriptures with humor yeah. and allow them because they are funny and they're and they're they're catechetically funny, right? They're, this is all written by Moses. Remember, you say, wait a minute, Moses is living during the time of the Exodus. That's many, many, many generations after that. Yes, but the Book of Genesis is written by Moses during the time of the Exodus. So he includes all the stories that would be helpful to the people of God who are coming out of slavery in Egypt. And what are the people saying? If you had to say, Annie. What's the one thing the people of God are doing and saying during the time of the Exodus? Oh, they're not trusting God. Yeah, they're like, yeah. Oh, we would you bring us out here in the desert because we, we don't need anything to drink. Yeah. So Moses strikes the thing. We're starving to death. So he gives them manna, right? And then they're like, oh, but we're hungry for this cucumbers of eat and the, the flesh right, pots, the flesh yeah. pots of Egypt. That they didn't trust the Lord and their heart was always going back to Egypt. And so this is the whole life of Abraham is a catechesis about what is going to happen. Look, I mean, if, if you if you doubt that, just look back at Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. So Abraham went up from Egypt. Who else went up from Egypt? The Israelites. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. Now, Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. How did he get silver and gold? Well, if you read the verses just before that, it's because he despoiled the Egyptians. Pharaoh was like, here, take, get out of my sight. Because there was a whole thing with Pharaoh and, and, his, and Sarah. So he, he despoils the Egyptians. Well, who else despoils the Egyptians? The Israelites during the time of the Exodus, when they left, it says that they, they left with all the gold and silver of Egypt. So this is a catechesis of what they, has just happened in the life of Israel is a retelling of the life of Abraham so that they can say, hey, look, this is what God did for Abraham. He's going to do the same for us. Trust him. Hmm. But of course, Sarah laughs okay there's i'm sorry we went really long but there's your context of this passage is given to us which is a fascinating story in the life of abraham and it kind of feels a little bit like it's kind of thrown in there in the midst of the the, the whole thing yeah and yeah. uh that's why the church is able to kind of excise it out of the whole rest of the story but anyways let's take a look at the text itself yeah okay so explain this to me father so the beginning of this passage says the Lord appeared to Abraham, blah, blah, blah. And then it says, looking up, he saw three men standing nearby. And then when he's talking to the men, the three men standing nearby, he says, sir, if you may, as if he's talking to what, what's what's going on here. Yeah, so talking so, to three people or one. What's yeah, what's so happening? Again, I, I don't need to spend much time on this because I know that your pastor is going to be preaching on this. And that is this has always been understood by the church fathers as a like the proto-revelation of the Holy Trinity. 
Yeah. Because of what you just pointed out there, he's, he's speaking in the singular and yet there's three there and these three are very kind of like strange, you know, very mysterious, very mysterious. And so this has always been read as the appearance of three angels to Abram. And the story is going to be to continue regarding Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and all of this business. So I would encourage you to read all of chapter 18 to understand the placement of this. But, but Annie, that's the, basically it is that the, that the fathers of the church reading this have always read this in, in as a revelation of the presence of God. And that's indeed in chapter 18, verse one, it says the Lord appeared to him by the Oaks of Mamre right in the verse one, mm-hmm. he sat and behold, three men stood in front of him. So obviously as the story continues, these are angelic beings But the angels come as representatives of the Lord, just as the apostles are sent, as we are as Christians, the angels participate in the ministry of of the Lord. And so here, three of them appear to Abram and and eat with him. And we see in this a, a foreshadowing of the revelation of the Trinity. Okay, well, then let's talk about what you want to talk about, the food. (laughs) So... Can you talk, but I mean, seriously though, can you talk about the hospitality of, of Abraham and, and Sarah here? I mean, do you, is there any significance to, to what they are serving this guest slash guests? I'm going to share with you a quotation from one of the church fathers that I think is, is very nice. It's kind of a classic way in which the church fathers did exegesis on this, uh, on this text and others. And so uh, St. Caesareus of Arles says this. He received the three men and served them loaves out of three measures. Why this, brothers, unless it means the mystery of the Trinity? Hmm. He also served a calf, not a tough one, but a good tender one. Now, what is so good and tender is he who humbled himself for us even unto death. He himself is that fatted calf which the father killed upon receiving his repentant son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For this reason, Abraham went to meet the three men and adored them as one. In fact, in, in, in the fact that he saw three, as was already said, he understood the mystery of the Trinity. But since he adored them as one, he recognized that there is one God in three persons. He goes on to say this, Lot too received men, as he goes on to continue in chapter 18. Okay, Lot too received men, but only two not the whole Trinity. Moreover, in the evening, not at noon, what did he serve them? He baked unleavened bread and they ate. Because he was much inferior to Abram, Abraham in merits, he did not have a fatted calf, nor did he recognize the mystery of the Trinity and the three measures of flour. However, since he offered what he could in a kindly spirit, he merited to be freed from the destruction of Sodom. Notice, brothers, that even Lot deserved to receive the angels because he did not reject the reject strangers. Behold, angels enter a hospitable home, but houses that are closed to strangers are burned with flames of sulfur. Yeah, so you got to go now and and read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to be able to see Lot's life in comparison to Abraham's life and the hospitality of Abraham. And that of Lot and his wife, who turns into a pillar of salt. But I have to go one step further regarding this hospitality business and have you flip in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. 
all the all way the, way the other end of your Bible. Of the Bible. Yep. Hebrews chapter 13. Cha- Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have ent- entertained angels unawares. Okay, mm. of course, St. Paul is writing about Abraham, right? And I, I bring this passage up because uh, as a maybe I'm going to go more in the homily direction for a minute, which I promised I wouldn't do, because this is an important biblical theme of hospitality as a form of love. Yeah. Mm. Love is the center of our Christian life. Yeah, it is. It is who God is and it is who we are made as image and after his likeness. And so our hospitality to others is a way in which we live out this calling of love. Unfortunately, today, in many places, hospitality has been lost. The art of hospitality has been lost. It's an important part of what we do at the Institute of Catholic Culture, and that is trying to encourage our participants to get serious about hospitality. Um, and, and I would encourage you maybe to, to, to get an icon of, of Abraham serving the, the, the holy angels. Mm. In fact, we're going to pull this up right now, and you're going to see very beautiful the, the tradition of iconography regarding this particular piece. So you'll see there the three angels, right? And all of the, the what, what uh, has been served to them. You'll also see there Abraham and Sarah. But you'll also see some of you, you notice, do you see, Annie, something funny about their hands? Do you see their finger got cut off? Oh, weird. And all of them, Why? all yeah. of them, all of them have the same finger cut off. Actually, the one the one on the furthest on the right, you'll notice it's not so much that it's cut off. His finger is just curled down. And there's a reason oh, for that. Interesting. And it's telling us this whole story of the life of Abraham prefigures the coming of Christ and the Eucharistic banquet that Christ oh. has come to give us, being mm. the one who is hospitable, right? The, the Lord himself. So so first of all, the, regarding the fingers, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew priests would bless God's people in using the name of God formed in the sign of his hand, holding up his hands to, 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 to bless the people. And the early Christians took this practice, but said, no, the one who is revealed to us is God is Jesus Christ. And so priests from the earliest days of Christianity bless the people. And you'll see sometimes pictures of popes doing this kind of a thing uh-huh. or see yeah. a flash in the peace sign. This is an artistic corruption. What this is, is that the, the priest still in the Byzantine tradition holds his hand like this. An I it replaces the J in Greek as it does in Latin. Yeah. Sure. And the, the, an S when it's on the end of a word, the Sigma tr- changes to a C. So we have an oh. I and we have a C. I C. Yeah. X. See Christos, the wow. last one, okay. So I'm gonna do this like this I C X, see the X right here, yeah, yeah, and then C and the blessing like this. Now, in I how long been- did you have to practice that hand figure before yeah. you were ordained a priest? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so, so you'll see the, the, the hand here, and uh, um, but this tells you that the story of Abraham prefigures the, the Eucharistic banquet, but even further than that, we'll 
pull up this icon now with the tracing on it of the chalice because the angels are seated at the table in the form of a goblet with the base coming oh, wow. down between their legs yeah and the and so forth okay wow uh, so so there you have it it's a prefigurement of the eucharistic banquet that is given to us by christ the holy trinity is present and abraham and sarah are there serving them very cool. And you, you know, you mentioned it being um, an act of love, hospitality, but I looking at the, the responsorial Psalm for this weekend and uh, Psalm 15, I'm wondering your thoughts because, you know, you always talk about how the Psalm is kind of an expression of the first reading, right? So is right. hospitality also a matter of justice? A form of justice this is very, this is, this is, I'm glad you asked the question, Annie. And, and because justice is so confusing for us today, because in modern American society, well, modern secular Lop society, off their heads. Yeah. yeah, justice is oftentimes an eye for an eye, right? Somebody yeah. does something bad and we get them back with an equivalent punishment, right? So someone steals a car, but you got to spend a year in jail. I don't right. know. Like, you know you, but you, you kill somebody. Now you're really, you're going to have to have a life sentence, right? Right. So you see this, it says, and, and, but, but a Christian perspective and our, actually our justice system is still very much reflects a certain Christianizing of, 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 of secular society in that we have a sense that really, when you put somebody in prison, you don't let them rot. In the ancient world, you just let them rot. You just yeah. stick them in there and they get eaten by mice and they just die of the worst, right? Yeah. Well, in, in, in our justice system, we don't think of justice in that way. I mean, yeah, they may have to spend a life, life sentence, but during that life sentence, we're going to try to rehabilitate them, right? So mm -hmm. ju there's a difference between retribution. Yeah. And restorative justice. Sure. Restorative justice always seeks to, and now I'm going to stop my sentence because I have to give you a, a definition. And that is the word, what, what is justice? And his classical definition is to give to another what is his due. Mm -hmm. Well, what is due to another person? Well, you, you from a secular perspective, what is due to somebody who murders is that they get murdered, right? You're like, right, what? Yeah. Boom, boom. But no, when we talk about from a Christian perspective, what is due to another person? is that which is proper to them. And what is proper to man is that he lives and then he's made in the image and likeness of God, right? So we can say that someone who becomes a murderer is themselves dead. Mm -hmm. they, they themselves, it's not, you know, are, are, were dead before they ever killed the person. Right. So, so now their time in prison has to be an attempt to bring them back to life. Yeah. To give them all the tools necessary to become what God wants them to become. So justice is, is, is a form of love. Yeah. Love is the giving of my life to the beloved to give the other everything they need to become what God wants them to be. And so we, we reflect on the life of Abraham the hospitality of Abraham, who gives to another that which sustains their life, right? He feeds them. And here we then sing, he who does justice will live in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because justice is this giving to the other what is his due, right? No greater love has any man that gives life for his friend. Right. And, so, and so now the one who does justice 
is existing in God. He's doing yeah. God's stuff, yeah. right? He who does justice will live in the presence of God. One who walks blamelessly and does justice, who thinks the truth in his heart and slanders not with his tongue. Yet you can't slander the other. You have, you, you, you have to think truth in your heart. And the truth is who this person is supposed to be. Yeah, listen to St. Jerome. He says, note exactly what the psalmist is saying and does justice. Now, the Holy Spirit did not say one who practices chastity, who applies wisdom, who exercises fortitude. Yet these are excellent virtues indeed. Wisdom, for example, is of great advantage to us. Fortitude is valuable in resisting persecution. Finally, temperance and chastity are indispensable in preventing us from losing our souls. Justice alone is the great virtue and mother of them all. Someone may ask, how is justice greater than all the other virtues? The other virtues gratify the one who possesses them. Justice does not give pleasure to the one possessing it, but instead pleases others. Mm. If I am wise, wisdom delights me. If I am brave, my fortitude comforts me. If I am, if I chase, my chastity is my joy. On the contrary, justice does not benefit the one who has it, but all the wretched who do not have it. Suppose, and he goes on and gives examples. Okay, so so there you have it. Is this this beautiful example given to us today in the readings of of what we are called, how we are called to live? Again, I say we are living in a Pentecost season, in which the church is grappling with its entrance into pagan society, secular society, whatever the case may be, in its original place after Pentecost, Jerusalem and Asia Minor, right? As they go out and now they, they're living in a foreign place. And how are they to live in that foreign place? Well, when, when, when strangers come, you give to them. Yeah, and the most, most important thing you can give to them is the faith. And the center of our faith is our Eucharistic Lord, which is why the angels are there as an example in the form of a chalice. Yeah. So the, the early church grappling with this, how they to relate to those who were formerly considered the enemy or formerly considered strangers not to be talked with. Um, and now we are called in a similar manner. And we'll have a chance to talk about this a little bit in our, our in the gospel reading, you know, a similar manner to live out this life of hospitality. Well, we see Jesus kind of kind of as if a kind of right we see jesus right. doing this in the in the gospel as uh we continue through luke chapter 10 shall we read it father go ahead you ready to go all right yep. luke chapter 10 this is verses 38 through 42 jesus entered a village where a woman whose name was martha welcomed him she had a sister named mary who sat beside the lord at his feet listening to him speak Martha, burdened with much serving, came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. The Lord said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. All right. Can you tell I kind of identify more with Martha? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just by my inflection i was thinking about that as i was reading it anyway um let's start off with context i'm curious of the sense of time here father i mean we've we've known for the past few weeks now 
that Jesus is is on his death march, so to speak. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the Passion. Right. So where where is he right now? And I mean, since we are talking about Martha and Mary in this passage, I'm curious too, how close is this happening to when he raises their brother Lazarus from the dead? Sure. So just turn with me very quickly. Keep your hand there in your Bible, Luke chapter uh, 10, and then turn with me very quickly to John chapter 12. Okay. Yeah. Well, John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So now we have the context, right? There's your geographic context. We're going to pull up a map here. You're going to see the journey on Palm Sunday from Bethany over the hill and down on the, uh, the Mount of Olives. Okay. So, but there's, there you can see Bethany. Bethany's not far from Jerusalem. It's, it's, right. it's right there. It's just over the hill. Now, today, most of our pilgrims, many of you have gone to the Holy Land either with the Institute or with other groups, and you'll know that it takes us a good bit of time to get over there because the Israelis have blocked, put a put a, uh, a concrete wall that's and makes you go through all these gates and stuff because of the of the war between the Palestinian people whom they're persecuting and uh and the Israeli people who have come to take their homes and live there so now there's conflict and war of course and so it takes a long time in the bus to get around that but you have to understand it's right there Bethany's right there right near Jerusalem so in the context of the gospel we're here Right. Jesus has arrived. Yeah. And and we're we're ready to go for the um for uh the passion narrative, but of course Jesus is going to do a lot of teaching especially in Luke um in between that. So all the way up to for example Luke chapter 20 19 and 20 and 21 when he goes into Jerusalem and into the temple and so forth, but before that you get all of these passages and and parables that Jesus is telling them and uh that connect this whole thing. So now so again from geographic and and gospel standpoint we we were back in Luke chapter 9 the transfiguration and we keep coming back week after week to chapter 9 verse 53 he sets his face to Jerusalem well kind of he's going to do some maneuvering up in Galilee just a little, little bit more and then he's going to make his way through the Samaritan village and he's going to make his way eventually all the way down. And now he arrives at Bethany and then he's going to be back and forth now in that area of Bethany, Jerusalem, the hill Got country it. there. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So let's talk about the passage itself now. Sure. My first question, is Jesus criticizing Martha here for, for hosting him? Well, it, 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 it always is told that way. because because of course we like to we like to just not we as we would rather just sit there and listen to jesus right Right. none of us wants to actually do anything um because we're lazy (laughs) but i'm going to share with you saint ephraim saint ephraim the syrian always when saint ephraim comments on a passage i like to listen to him so he says mary came and sat at his feet this was as though she were sitting on firm ground at the feet of him who had forgiven the sinful woman her sins She had put on a crown in order to enter the kingdom of the firstborn. She had chosen the better part. 
the benefactor, the Messiah himself. This will never be taken away from her. her. But Martha's love was more fervent than Mary's. Mm. For before he arrived there, she was ready to serve him. Do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? When he came to raise Lazarus to life, she ran and came out first. So Martha has this fervent love for the Lord. Yes, Mary has chosen the better part. In fact, um, St. Augustine has a beautiful way of speaking about Mary. He says, what was Mary enjoying while she was listening? What was she eating? What was she drinking? Do you know? Let's ask the Lord who keeps such splendid a table for his own people. Let's ask him. Blessed, he says, are those who are hungry and thirsty for justice because they shall be satisfied. It was from this wellspring, from this storehouse of justice that Mary seated at the Lord's feet was in her hunger receiving some crumbs. You see, the Lord was giving her then as much as she was able to take. But as for the whole amount which which he was going to give at his table of the future, not even the disciples, not even the apostles themselves were able to take at that time. And he, he goes on. So the, the point is that the fathers of the church, St. Augustine in particular here, talk in terms of, of Mary eating from Jesus, hmm. yeah, receiving from Jesus, and Martha serving. But here's the important thing that it answers your question, which is, well, poor, like, poor Martha. Well, oh, she did. She always gets a bad rap. And, um, but remember, Jesus doesn't say what Martha is doing is bad. He says that Mary's chosen the better part, a oh, part of a whole. Yes. It's really the story of Martha and Mary, the images of Martha and Mary that we should hold up in front of us as our icons of holiness, because both are important. We come to serve the Lord. He comes at, well, he says he comes to serve us. Right. And now is there's back and forth relationship of communion with one another. So is, is service bad? Jesus says, I have come not to be served, but to serve. So it's not that service is bad, but of course, it also must be receptive to receive what God wants to give to us. So I would just say both Martha and Mary stand as icons for us. And I think today in our church, we could use a little more Martha. And I am going to give a little homily here, not right now, but before we finish today, I have to give a homily on, on, on hospitality in our church because we got problems. Oh, awesome. I look forward to hearing what you have to say there. Can I add one more thing to uh, what you were just quoting St. Augustine Yeah. and the book that I use, this lectionary book that I use is, has commentary from Dr. Bergsma in it, you know, my boy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm always bringing up Dr. Bergsma. Anyway, he, um, he writes in here. About Mary, we can apply a pleasing interpretation of an important Old Testament text. After the Sinai covenant was solemnized in in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8, the leaders of Israel went up on Mount Sinai, and they shared a meal with God. It says they beheld God and ate and drank. And Dr. Bergsma writes, some ancient rabbis took this to mean they looked at God, and in this way, they ate and drank. In other words, the beatific vision was their sustenance. And mm-hmm. I think saying exactly the same thing about Mary there. That's, this is, this is true. And now I'm going to give my homily. Yeah. Because I think that's fairly strong in our church. In fact, so many good, so many churches have adoration chapels, 24 hour adoration, and this is all good. Mm-hmm. But how many of our churches have 24 hour hospitality? 
how many of our churches welcome strangers actively, like actively working to welcome strangers, those who are wandering, yeah, who come into our churches? How many of us, when someone comes to the church for the first time, lay out a spread like Abraham did or like Martha did? Yeah. There can Do be they a... even recognize them as strangers. I mean, honestly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there can be, right. I mean, a lot of us don't even know who's in the church. Right. Yeah. But there, I would say there can be a certain tendency in our church that is, that is, I think, particularly influenced by a Protestant understanding, a modern Protestant understanding of salvation, which is that it, it is, it is not a corporate reality, but an individual relationship. And I go to adoration during my hour of adoration to see my Lord and speak with him directly. And this is good, but it also must include a corporate worship or liturgical worship, which then transforms us. So adoration is wonderful, but is it, 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 are you being transformed in the Lord himself who says, I have come not to be served, but to serve. Are you walking out of adoration as a servant of God's people and bringing that gift of the Lord to others? So I would say where we're strong in sitting at the feet of the Lord, we're strong in maybe even Bible studies where we're listening to the word of God or whatever daily mass hearing this, the biblical text, we should let that gift ought to be informing our hospitality so that we become people who are serving one another in love as Hebrews, as St. Paul says in Hebrews, right? Mm-hmm. That we are people who are entertaining angels unawares. They look like a foreigner to me, looks like a stranger to me, looks like a homeless person to me, looks like somebody I don't get along with, looks like somebody from a different culture to me, right? Well, God has sent that person to you, an angel sent from God. You get to serve angels. And yet we are unaware of it. And therefore our unawareness ends up affecting us so that I go in and I start treating the church like a vending machine. There you go. I get my goods and I leave and my life isn't transformed. Do you know where your life is to be transformed as a Christian? Right outside the door of your church. So, so many of our churches actually have good charitable works. Like we, we have homeless outreach. We have, you know, all these things, but you know, what about the people that are right there in your church? I've been reflecting on this over the last couple of years. The early church very much served itself, if you will, like first and foremost was the brother, my, that the Lord put in my life right here, right. And now. Yeah. We have to regain this understanding that we are in a, in a, a, a sacred family and, and, and when we come to church. And that family never wants to leave. You, you want a good example of this, the, the story of the Last Supper or the Mystical Supper, right? Sure. Where Jesus talks with his best friends and he never stops talking. He just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. And the conversation, John, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And he never finishes because he never wants to leave their presence. Yeah. And he keeps, so this is what should be going on outside of our churches. And so I'm going to get some practical advice to, to all of you. Do you love the Lord? Yes. Do you want to be like him? Absolutely. Do you want to live his life? 
Do you yes. want to have communion with him? Yep. Then go outside your door of your church and plug in a coffee maker. And then take the next radical step and get some donuts. Now that's radical. And stay and clean up afterwards, of course. And then the next Sunday, radical of all things, because we've got a professional kitchen built into most of our churches. Why don't you go make some rice and chicken? What? what about getting out some bottles of wine and some beer and some sodas for the kids and setting up a couple tables out there so that when we come out of church on Sunday, we can actually put a plate of food in front of people with some tables set out there so that we can enjoy it. or in the hall. So that they so, actually stay. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm just going to share with you a quotation from Pope Benedict that I have used before. I, I love it. He says, he says, I mean, his address to catechists, he says, without a doubt, amending of the fabric of society is urgently needed in all parts of the world. I love this image of fabric because fabric mm, is, is yeah. it's all, it's interwoven, right? Like this. Right. And he's saying our society has, has, has ripped apart. It's individualized now. It's no longer tied together. He says, but for this to come about, what is needed is to first remake the fabric of our ecclesial community. That's a fancy way of saying it, our church communi community itself. So you want to solve the problem out there? If you want to solve the problem with the secularists? And the abortionists and the Nancy Pelosi's fix what's going on inside the church. Yeah. And, and, and what is going on inside the church is an individualized Christianity where the fabric has, has torn apart. You want to fix what's going on out there? Fix this first. You get to know your neighbor in the pew next to you. You get to know the person standing outside your church. Invite them to your home. Make Sunday what it used to be, which is a family day. And not just for your blood family. That's important. But more importantly is your spiritual family. You share the most important things with. Gather together on nights when the Institute of Catholic Culture has a program. And study together. And eat together. Live together. Pray together. And you'll discover the communion of the Holy Trinity revealed to us in the life of Abraham serve that serve that community and you will serve god himself you will serve angels unawares well correct I, this might be too much of a stretch but i don't i don't think it is but you can correct me just to connect it to the second reading as as yes. we conclude this study together in colossians chapter 1 Yes. Paul talking about his his sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I feel like this is kind of similar, like Jesus is giving us an opportunity to be like him. I mean, yeah, Paul's talking about sufferings here, but I think in the same way we can extend that to hospitality, to love, as you've been talking about all throughout. I, I don't even have to say anything. I'm just going to say what you just said in my way of saying it, right? Which is love is the giving of our life to the beloved, right? What could possibly be lacking in the sufferings of Christ in, in, in the giving of his life 
right? That when we talk about the sufferings of Christ, don't, don't think, you know, appeasing the eternally vengeful God. No, no. In, in the giving of our, in the dying of ourself that we might totally live for another. What is lacking in this great eternal mystery of God's life of love? You and I. That's what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ is our participation in him. And notice what St. Paul is able to do. He is able to make up. He's able to make up on your behalf. Yeah? yeah. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church, which yeah. means that what I do benefits you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are to live this community of love to serve one another until and, and, until we've given all of ourselves as Christ has given all of himself. Then and only then will we be likened to Christ. Only then will we can we say it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Uh, what a beautiful gift this is an opportunity. This is. Next time you get in your car and drive to the church, get out of the church in the parking lot, take your keys and throw them as far as you can into the far reaches of the bushes so you can't find them anymore. Because that's where we should be living. These are the people we should be living with. These are the people we should be serving. These are the ones we should be suffering for, giving our life for. And then we will discover the true life which God has come to give us. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.